Good morning, church. It is July, and we have a new memory verse for the month. I think it maybe had already been up. Guess what? If you haven't memorized it yet, you won't know it, but I'll go ahead and say where it is so we know where it is for the coming months. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Pete. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 is our memory verse for this month. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Very good. And we will get into chapter 7 in the month of July and look forward to continuing uh, in our study together through the book of 1 Corinthians. Anybody know anyone in here who is a tattletale? Yeah, and all the children are elbowing each other, saying, that's you, right? Maybe even some of the parents. I see fingers pointing back in my own family's row of the tattletales that are among them. We, in our family, uh, oftentimes will send our children outside to play, and our children know at this point that it's probably much better for them to deal with any issues that arise that don't involve blood within their own unit, rather to bring them indoors and disturb mom and dad with them. Uh, Because oftentimes mom and dad's solution to those trivial matters that take place as children are playing outside are going to be far more cumbersome and far more uh, difficult to deal with than if they would have just figured out a way to deal with those matters themselves. As we open the text today, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul is dealing with some tattletaling that was going on outside of the church. People in the body of Christ were taking matters that should have been dealt with in the church out into the public courts. Paul considered trivial matters as needed to be kept within the community of faith. It was not healthy for the witness or the testimony of the church for the church to handle trivial matters that can be dealt with within its congregation outside in the public courts. With Jesus as our prize and our priority, we have everything in him that we need to handle these matters from within. Yet, we will find that sometimes we forfeit these things to run back to the false security of the world's wisdom. Paul's going to ask a lot of questions in our text today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11, and ultimately we will find that he is challenging us, the church, to live as the new creations that we have been fashioned into. All things are ours. Real wisdom is available to us, and we should prioritize living as we have been called to live. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We will be in verses 1 to 11 today. And let's pray and ask God to guide our time before we study. Lord, we come together and surround your word this morning. And we know that you are working right now within our faith community. This is a corporate activity. Studying your word together, whether we're here in the building or whether we're at home or celebrating the 4th of July someplace else. Today, Lord, you are with us. 
Your spirit is moving and at work through your word. And there are truths here in this text today that are very relevant and applicable to the way that we live in the places that you have planted us in. And so we come to your word as those who are hungry, starving, looking for a morsel. And we're trusting in your spirit to apply to each one of us exactly what you have intended through our study together today. Thank you so much for the powerful truth and the active work of your word at work among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, it's important that when we study this letter, we remember that this is one whole letter. It's important that we read it as such. I know we take time in our weeks together to break out these small portions, but it's important to remember that Paul has laid a foundation earlier in this letter for what he is writing about even now. If all things are ours, as Paul has stated at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, then it should follow that the people of God should not give back to the world that which has been given to them in Christ Jesus. And from the context, what we know in chapter 5, it appears that someone has taken issue with this sexually immoral character of chapter 5 and has pursued legal advice or counsel outside of the church in the public courts. Hence, the proverbial dirty laundry of the Christian faith community is now being aired out in the public square. Paul says, don't do this. There's a better way for the people of God in Christ to handle trivial matters within the camp. And he's going to use nine questions in 11 verses 
to walk us towards the heart of the matter in verse 11, then again at the end of the chapter. Look again at verses 1 and 2. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? When the saints of the church have grievances against one another that might be considered or seen as minor infractions, we are to deal with these matters in-house among one another. Paul gives guidance in verse 2. His instruction is specifically for trivial cases found within the community of saints. He's talking about fender benders that might have led to minor injuries rather than accidents that have led to serious trauma. And it's so important that we clarify here at the beginning that it is not the sin itself that is a trivial matter. Paul has just cleared that up in chapter 5. The sin is a serious matter. Even as he concludes in chapter 5, one that is of life and death importance. What Paul is saying is that this particular sin or matter is trivial in regards to how the public courts would prioritize and or adjudicate it. The public courts of Rome, in other words, had far greater and far more pressing matters than the sin that was crippling the testimony of the Corinthian church. And besides that, there has been wisdom that's been granted to the saints of the church that is far greater and far more trustworthy than the wisdom that is held up within the public court system. And Paul encourages and is encouraging the church then and the church today to keep hold of what's been given to them in Christ. He reveals this in verse 3. Look at what he says. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Church, this is incredible. When you think about this, God has given us authority that even extends beyond the authority that he has given to the angels. We should wrestle with this because its implications are enormous. Humanity has been given greater authority than the angels. Consider that. The Bible teaches that it is humankind, mankind, that is created in the image of God, not angels. It is humankind that has been called, that has been cleansed, that has been redeemed, and has been raised up in Christ, not the angels. It is the angels who are sent by God to serve the saints. And while we, the saints, sometimes may entertain angels unbeknownst to us, we are not caught up in serving the angels. Christ is exalted high above the angels. And church, we have been raised up and seated together with Christ. We share in this authority even over the angels. And Paul says if this is the case, the church will even have a part in the judgment 
of those in the unseen spiritual realm than how much more so here in the physical realm. So look at his conclusion in verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Another way to ask that question would be, how could those who have no standing within the church with consistency and accuracy adjudicate matters that affect the health and the well-being of the body of Christ? What the world would view as trivial matters among believers within our own faith communities need to be handled in-house, if at all possible. And Paul is now going to press harder into a sore spot that was between he and the people of God in Corinth. Namely, how they perceived and prioritized wisdom. We remember from earlier study in the letter, wisdom was very important to these people. Paul has been careful earlier in his letter not to shame the people. We remember this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. But here, regarding this issue, he reverses his course, doesn't he? Look at verse 5. New, new case, new issue, new tone, new attitude. Verse 5, I say this to your what? Shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough in all of the wisdom that you perceive that you have and that you follow in Corinth? Can it be that there's no one wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Paul's saying this to their shame because the people of God in Corinth had taken so much pride in their self-perceived wisdom. Thinking themselves to be wise They were actually too foolish to even adjudicate the matters that came up within their own body. And essentially, Paul's putting it back in their face here. You say you are wise. You want to follow the most wise and most eloquent teachers. Remember, some said, I follow Apollo. Some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow others. How is that wisdom working for you when you take these trivial legal matters outside of the body of Christ? Look at verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. And and whenever you see that, you can also include sister. And that before unbelievers. This is to their shame, church, today. This is to our shame when this happens because there is real and powerful and eternal and abundant wisdom that is available to us in Christ Jesus. And as the people of God, we are not to forfeit the kingdom wisdom that is available to us in favor of the world's wisdom pertaining to the cases that the world would see as trivial. If the ways of God, as we know in the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul's already explained, if the ways of God are foolishness to the unbelieving world, it's a message Paul's already fully explored, then why would the church willingly seek wisdom in these trivial legal matters from the world? It makes no sense. And think 
Just think about it this way, church. Think about the testimony of our faith communities in the eyes of the unbelieving world. And how it looks when we bring legal matters, trivial legal matters within the church outside into the public courts. If the church can't even get along with one another and adjudicate minor legal matters within our own faith communities, we're acting just as those who don't have Christ act. What is the difference? Look at what Paul says in verse 7. To to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If we care at all about living for Christ in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world, which is what we are kind of theming this study after, that question, how we might do that, then it is important for us to recognize that even having lawsuits amongst one another is a defeat for our testimony and our witness in this world. Now think about this. This is Paul's writing. In light of eternity, why not just suffer the wrong or be defrauded when it is believer to believer within our own faith communities? What here on earth is so worth holding on to or fighting for? With eternity in heaven set before us, what on earth do the people of God have to file lawsuits against one another over? If we have never practiced the principle that love covers a multitude of sins, perhaps here in this text is a good place to start. I wonder today, have we ever allowed ourselves to be defrauded or to suffer wrongdoing without seeking retribution? It's hard. It's also the example of our Savior. And it may also be very loving and a way of expressing our humility and demonstrating what living with eternity in view actually looks like when it is applied to our lives. Well, Paul's suggestion here is that for the church to be running around filing frivolous grievances against one another in local public courts is akin to wronging and defrauding one another. And he's going to put a link in verse 8 that connects us to verse 9. Look at verses 8 and 9. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This behavior, church, is not what we have been created in Christ Jesus for. And when we practice it, we're acting no differently than the unrighteous, those without Jesus who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And what Paul is going to do now is he's going to transition us into a list of vices and sins. That describes some of the behaviors that are present and practiced in the community of the unrighteous. That should not be openly and unrepentantly present and practiced within the community of the righteous. And there's a few important notes before we dive into this list. And then a few observations as we explore this list. First, 
It's important that as we look at this list as a body of Christ, we recognize that this is not meant to be a comprehensive list. In other words, Paul isn't identifying every sin that could possibly ever exist among the body of Christ. He's covering a multitude of unrighteousness here, but this list is not exhaustive. There are other sins that are not mentioned here that would be equally as egregious. Second, it's important that we understand that Paul is not intending through this part of his letter to communicate that anyone who has ever participated or practiced one or more of these sins is permanently or eternity or, or eternally disqualified from the kingdom. As we've explored in Chapter 5, there is a difference between sin that leads to conviction and brokenness and confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration and sin that is practiced openly, free from conviction, without any godly grief that leads to repentance. Now with those things in line and in mind, let's take a look at verses 9 and 10 again. Paul says this, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Church, what Paul is saying here is a matter of both relating to God rightly through Jesus and loving one another rightly as God has given this command to the church. Paul is condemning a multitude of unrighteousness here, starting with sexual immorality, both of the heterosexual form and homosexual or same-sex nature. We're wrong to assume Live or believe as if one is more egregious than the other. All sexual sins, both of the heterosexual and same-sex nature, are affronts to God and considered as unrighteous. And church, regarding sexual unrighteousness, Paul is descriptive here. The English words that our translations use do not do justice to the specific and descriptive nature of the Greek words that Paul is using here. Starting with sexual immorality, the word is the same word that we use today for pornography. And it implies a lust-filled longing to sexually consume or overtake another individual. The next word that Paul uses here is related specifically to sexual sin. It is the word adultery. And it constitutes the one who is faithless towards God and or their spouse. The next phrase that he uses related to sexual immorality in the Greek is actually two separate words. Our English translation. Translation makes them one phrase, men who practice homosexuality. But specifically here, Paul is using descriptive words that would indict both parties involved in the act. Church, the bottom line is this. 
sexual purity should be a priority, a high priority for kingdom citizens because we live in a world that cares very little about protecting and valuing the dignity of people and is much more concerned about getting what we want from one another. And that is not to God's glory. We are to look different. We are to sound different. We are to act different because there is a better way. God has given us a better way. Church, we're created in Christ Jesus for a different kind of lifestyle. One that is concerned with giving our lives away for the glory of God and the good of one another. A lifestyle that's sacrificial and humble, abounding in steadfast love and compassion. When we lay down our lives for one another, we give up the fleshly desire to consume one another in favor of a God-honoring desire of building one another up and stirring one another up towards love and good works. I want you to hear this today. A Jesus-loving and biblically-anchored worldview does not allow for us to make our sexuality and sex lives an amoral issue. It matters. They matter. Getting it right matters to God and to the faith community. There are spiritual mysteries woven into the fabric of our sexual encounters. Paul affirms this when he speaks of two becoming as one flesh, being largely this mysterious reality that he's speaking of. How a believer expresses himself or herself regarding our sexual, sexuality or sexual activity is incredibly important to God. Friends, the lies in our world are prevalent. And the lies in our world are ever before us. Everywhere we look, just do what feels good. Act however you want. Your body is yours alone. Friends, this does not jive within a Christian faith community. What feels right is not always right. Acting however we want can seriously hurt other people and seriously affect our relationship with God and others. And our bodies are not our own. From a biblical perspective. They belong to God. And they belong to one another. And using them rightly is important to both God and our faith community. Church, we need to be serious about getting sexuality and sexual behavior right within the Christian church. Parents, grandparents, caregivers, those who are raising children, this has to be, must be a high priority. And let me tell you, start early. Start young. I'm so thankful for my wife. She's so good at this. She's had discussions with our children since they were so little about these things. Sometimes even discussions that are awkward for me. 
had to ask her to start warning me at the dinner table before she had him because sometimes I wanted to get up and run away. <laughs> and she's a nurse. She uses the real words. <laughs> Use the real words. Don't sugarcoat it because the world is not going to. They're not going to. So we shouldn't either. Talk about how God has made us, how God has designed us so beautifully and how we're fearfully and wonderfully made in his image and how sex is to be reserved for within the marriage relationship. Sometimes it is awkward, I promise you. But the more we do it, the easier it gets. And we need to talk to our children more, more often as well about the shortcomings and pitfalls and limitations that are built within the world's unsatisfactory and woefully short-sighted view of sexuality and sexual behavior. And let me tell you, it is unsatisfactorily and woefully short-sighted, that worldview. As caregivers, as folks that are raising children, from God's word, we have the most comprehensive, the most consistent, and the most cohesive sexual ethic in the world. It is beautiful, and it works beautifully for the glory of God and for the good of one another. Amen? And those who practice their sexuality, and their sex lives, according to the word of God, experience far less pain and brokenness than those who do not. We need to let our children see how God views human sexuality and how we can actually celebrate sex in its proper context. All those who married should say amen. And parents and grandparents and caregivers. Let me remind all of us. I preached to myself this morning as well. That we could do this. Do it, do it well. Do it regularly. Do it consistently. And our children could still stumble. Struggle. Or we could still stumble. Struggle. And get it wrong. It's tough. The world we live in does not make it easy. And we need to be ready when there is brokenness and contrition over sexual sin. We need to be ready to show the grace, the love, the compassion and the forgiveness that we too have been shown by God. And for those who do fall short, whether you're a child or an adult, a youth, a young adult, a seasoned saint, know this. Our sexual shortcomings do not have to define us. If we are children of God, called and adopted by him, we've committed our lives to Christ and submitted ourselves under his authority, then our identity is in Christ. Amen. And if there is struggle with sexual sin, even struggles regarding sexuality and sexual identity today, know this. Jesus' ways are far better than the ways of this world. If and when we find ourselves in these battles, we must cling to Jesus. 
lean into and trust His goodness, letting His wisdom, not the world's wisdom, guide and direct us. His wisdom is found in His Word. If you're here today and you're struggling in some way, or if you're listening online today, wherever you might be, and struggling in some way with any form of sexual sin, I want to give you a challenge today. I want you to invite a mature believer in the church to come alongside of you and walk together with you through these sexual struggles. There are good brothers and sisters in Christ here at CNBC. Ones that would welcome you into their lives and share truth with you from God's word regarding these matters. If you're struggling today, I want you to make a mental note right now. Wherever you are, don't let another day pass without talking to somebody. Getting purity right is important and is a priority to the people of God in Christ. Male students... Reach out to a male youth leader. We have many here that love Jesus and would love to talk to you about these things. Female students, look up a female youth leader. Talk to them. Confide in them. They'll walk alongside of you, guide you, and direct you in God's wisdom on these matters. Adults in our congregation, male and female, find an elder or pastor or an elder's wife or pastor's wife that you can trust and talk to them. They'll walk alongside of you. They'll share scriptures with you, communicate God's word with you, give you direction on how they could help or where you could find help for the situation or circumstance that you may find yourself in. Standing up to our sexual struggles, holding ourselves accountable to God's standard for our sexual identity and sexual activity And pursuing holiness and wholeness in our sexuality is a priority to the body of Christ here at CNBC. And for those who are broken by sexual struggle and sexual sin, I want you to know this today. We are here to pray with you, to support you, to love and to encourage and help build you up in the faith. But for those who are proud, and Paul talks about this in chapter 5, for those who are proud who are unwilling to acknowledge sin issues, sexual sin issues in particular, for those who are openly practicing, engaging, maybe even celebrating sexual sin, there is warning or admonishment. There is confrontation, redemptive redirection, separation maybe even for a time, which hopefully, prayerfully would lead towards attitudes of brokenness and humility and confession And repentance over sin. Which then would ultimately lead towards restoration. Back into a right relationship. Within our faith community. That is how the body of Christ works. As it relates to these matters. Now we've spent a lot of time talking about sexual sins. And and friends it's important. Paul is highlighting it here in this section of his letter. However he does not end there does he? There's more than just sexual sins that he lists here. There's a whole multitude of other unrighteousness that interferes with our command to love God and love each other. Paul mentions here idolatry. He mentions thievery. He mentions greed and drunkenness and revelers and swindlers. Church, all of these sins are rooted in pride. All of these sins communicate our ways are better. Our desires are more fulfilling. Something else rather than God can meet and satisfy 
my needs and desires. But you know what? All of these sins are also sins of consumption and indulgence. Which speaks of why it's important we still take time to visit this list when we get to it in the text. Today, in America, and throughout the world, in many countries, we still live in a very consumer or indulgent-oriented society. Have it your way does not just apply when we're at Burger King. That mentality actually has seemed to have crept into churches all over America. If I don't like the way my church does it, I'll go find another one that does it the way I like. If I can no longer find a church that will fit my desires, I'll go and consume somewhere else. Church, moving past our culture's consumer mentality as a people of faith, who pri- we need to be people who prioritize questions like this. What can I do for my faith community? Above questions like, what can my faith community do for me? Frequently, Paul describes the church throughout this letter as a body. And just as we sometimes mistreat our own personal bodies, we often find ourselves in the practice of mistreating the corporate body of Christ. We indulge ourselves in consumption, indulgence, and consumerism rather than sacrificial love. And just as healthy marriages are often made up of two individuals who are motivated by love to outserve one another for God's glory, healthy churches, true, vibrant, good, healthy churches that are growing are made up of people who are sacrificially motivated by love, set on course to outserve one another, not expecting anything in return. Rather doing so as they were doing it unto the Lord himself. And when we start asking questions like how can I serve. Rather than how can I be served. The Lord begins to clearly reveal ways that we can step in and help. To build up our communities of faith. We are called to be a part of this church. All of us together. To be building one another up. Not just certain ones of us. Every single one of us. God has called us out of the lifestyle of the unrighteous. This consumeristic, indulgent lifestyle. Why go back participating and practicing then the ways of unrighteousness? We've been created in Christ Jesus for so much more. And as we conclude this first section of chapter 6, Paul reminds the people in verse 11. Look at what he says. He reminds them. And such were some of you. Church, that's for us today. And such were some of us. But. Don't we love those buts in the Bible? They're the best. They're so hope-filled. But. We were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How marvelous and how wonderful, church. We are new creations. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. The washing that Paul is talking about here is not our physical baptism. Rather, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens at the moment of our salvation where we're taken from the realm of the unrighteous and baptized into the community of the righteous, the fellowship of the saints. Being set apart from the world, we're declared holy by Jesus and now we're seen by God as just because of the work of Jesus in our lives. Notice Paul describes both All three actions and includes all three persons of the Trinity. Washing, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Church, this, verse 11, and we'll see again at the end of chapter 6. This is the reality. This is the mentality that as a community of saints, we are called to live, walk, and serve one another with. So, as we've asked every week in this study through this book, how do we live as disciples of Jesus and function as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world, considering the truth in this text today? Taking hold of all we've been given in Christ, we handle trivial matters internally, using the kingdom wisdom of humility and sacrificial love, We express the righteousness of Christ within our faith community, stirring one another up towards love and good works. As our team comes today to lead us in end, can it be? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much again for the truth of your word. This indeed is a truth that is so relevant for today as we live in a world that's so consumed with sex and sexuality. And Lord, it's our heart's desire to get this right according to the standards that you've given us in your word. And we know that in today's world and today's culture, these will not be popular things. We know, in fact, for many, there'll be things that are laughed at, maybe even pushed aside as something that's irrelevant or untimely. But Lord, we cling to the truth of your word. We cling to the person of Jesus, to what he's communicated to us about these things. And it's our desire To live as a people who pursue purity and holiness as you have called us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, we need your help to do this. We need your help to do this in the neighborhoods that you've placed us in. We need your help to do this in our faith communities. We need you to be with us in every moment of every step of this journey. Help us to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. We spent some time today talking about uh, what many may consider to be a difficult subject in a biblical view of our sexuality and sexual sins regarding how Paul addresses it in his word. And I want to do something this morning. John, could I have your your stool here real quick? Thank you. I want to place this stool here today as a sign and a symbol knowing that 
in a faith community our size with so many people that there are many within our own congregation and our own faith community whose lives have been seriously hurt or impacted by the sexual sins of others. This morning, I'm setting those people on that stool. And before we go today, I want to pray for those people. Let's pray. Father, our sin often is so heavy and so blinding, we don't always see or realize how it affects other people, and yet we know that sexual sin in particular carries with it a level of pain and hurt and torment towards those who it is perpetuated against that we cannot begin to describe. And so today, Lord, on that stool, in my mind, sits the lives of those in our faith community have been affected by other people's sin. God's sin should cause our hearts to break. And our hearts should break for those whose hearts are broken by others. My heart is broken today for any in our faith community we've experienced the devastation of sexual sin might they know the healing and the restoration that is only available through your son Jesus Christ might you make them whole might you lift them up Might you draw them in, hold them in your arms, and might they know that they are loved and that their faith community cares deeply about them and is here for them. In Jesus' name, amen.